Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we're going to the Big Apple, New York City, everyone, to talk about urban botany. And I am joined by one of the best people to do just that. We're going to hear from botanist Marielle Anzalone, and she is just one of the most staunch advocates of New York City wildflowers, native plants, and, and New York City ecosystems in general. This is a really fascinating discussion of discovery, of conservation, and of why even the most rarest of the rare can inspire people to do more for local ecosystems, no matter where you live. What's more, she's going to highlight how even the most heavily developed urban areas can still have plenty of wildlife to enjoy, and they wouldn't be there without plants. And that is what she focuses on. But before I get to that, I just want to say, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it. There's a lot of different ways to do that, one of which is you can pick up some of our merch. Merch is a great way to support this show. There's a lot of really cool prints, and you can customize them to fit your style. So go check that out. You can find it in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast or going to the top of the page and clicking on apparel. But that is entirely enough for me. I can't wait for you to hear what Mario has to say. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado... Here's my conversation with Marielle Anzalone. I hope you enjoy. All right, Marielle Anzalone, welcome to the podcast. It is an honor to have you here. I'm so excited to talk to you about the topic today, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Hi, Matt. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Marielle Anzalone, as you said, and I'm a botanist in New York City, which is maybe a little weird. <laughs> um, you know, I I think it took my parents a long time to kind of figure out what I was doing. They were like, oh, daffodil something? No. Peenies. Yeah. Yeah. So how did this happen? I mean, if your parents don't understand it now, I'm guessing they weren't necessarily the force that pushed you into plants. Where did the plant journey begin for you? No, they were not. I grew up in New Jersey, in suburban New Jersey, um, and I went to Rutgers. Shout out to Rutgers. I went to Rutgers twice as un for undergrad and my graduate work. Nice. And yeah, and so I'm a Jersey girl through and through. Um, but I had really good teachers, honestly. I went to college as a pre-med major, and I know people have heard this story before. <laughs> and I was like, what is happening? People, it was so cutthroat, and it was just not, like, I'm a very competitive person, but this was just not mm. my jam. Yeah. I was, you know. So um, I switched and was getting an environmental science degree. And I, you know, at the time, I just didn't have a very good advisor hmm. because I obviously went from like a life science to an engineering science and I was kind of miserable. But then um, my senior year, I took this kind of survey class and part of it was discussing um, field ecology. Hmm. And I was like, what is this magic? Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I'll never forget it. It was Dr. David Ehrenfeld who was talking about serotonous cones in the New Jersey Pinelands. And I was like, that sounds magical. Nice. Like these cones that I'm sure everyone knows, but they're um, these cones that are produced by pitch pine. Pitch pine have evolved um, with fire, uh, and their fire adaptations are, you know, that they have really thick um, bark on their trunks. And something else is these serotonous cones that have like very sort of, you know, um, pernicious pitch on them. So the resin melts at a certain temperature and it's at that high temperature also that, um, you know, surrounding plants have burned and so are contributing um, to the very sandy soil. So now there's a nice little nutrient bed mm. for the um the pitch pine to germinate. And so they open up and the seeds are released. It, you know, it's just amazing. And I'd never heard that before. And I had never heard the place that I lived talked about in a, that way, like oh, with wow. such love. Yeah. Yeah. New Jersey is always like, you know, gets made fun of by New Yorkers. <laughs> You're um, right. The turnpike, you know, it does, you know, yeah. and of course, New Jersey is so much more than the turnpike. Um, yeah. And so I just thought that that was like magical. It's like, what is he talking about? This, I need to know more about this. And I think much to my parents chagrin, <laughs> I yeah. pivoted right out of, um, you know, yeah, any, any jobs, um, like that. And I ended up going back to school, um, for my master's degree. And I studied with Dr. Ehrenfeld. I studied with both 
Ehrenfelds. Um, his wife, Joan, as well, was a very oh, wow. well-known uh, wetland ecologist. Nice. Um, yeah. And my, I had a very, very, very wonderful graduate advisor, Dr. Jean Marie Hartman. And she, uh, you know, I would never have gotten through my undergrad, my graduate work without her because she basically held my hand. I was like, I want to go to graduate school and learn more about like, you know, what he was talking about, which was ecology. But I, didn't know I didn't really know what I wanted to do so she sat me down and was like do you like plants <laughs> animals and I was like mm, I think I like plants she's like do you like them up close or do you like them far away <laughs> no I'm not kidding that's and awesome I was like, yeah and you know I was like talk to me like I'm five I'm all about it um yeah so she was really wonderful and so supportive um you know and found me work um and research to do and i ended up doing my research on um looking at the rare plants of new jersey but the but sort of the worst uh, examples of that. Hmm. So, um you know, the natural heritage program in every state is looking at state rare plants and new jersey's no different. Uh and out of um 3,000 species, maybe 10% of them are considered rare in the state, the species. Oh, wow. And so then looking at different populations, how, um, you know, how they would be ranked according to um, the Natural Heritage Program. A rank is like very high quality, you know, there's above a certain threshold number and um, it's... Uh, the population is um, undisturbed, you know, all those kind of markers of really high quality population. But I was looking at the C and D populations where, you know, it was maybe along a highway mm -hmm. and there were only a handful of um, specimen within the population. So what were the drivers behind the loss or and degradation of these populations? And it turns out urbanization, right. like not a shock. But urbanization captures so much, like what does that really mean? Yeah. Um, and so trying to kind of parse that out. And just looking at that. So, yeah, that was the research I did. And then I took that mindset with me um, when I moved to New York City. My husband and I, well, we weren't married at the time, but we were living in Philadelphia and he got a job in New York City. And I had just finished my graduate work at Rutgers. So I was like, well, I'm going to, you know, we're moving together and I'll get a job in New York. Um, and that's what I did. I worked wow. for the city park department nice. for a long time. Yeah. And I did the same kind of work there. So I looked at the plants in, of New York city through that same lens of, um, you know, what's the rarest and why they're there. And so I should back up a little bit at this point and say, okay, okay New York city is not just pigeons, weeds, and rats. New York City <laughs> is actually has this amazing flora, and it has an incredibly rich natural history that has been recorded. Um, you know, first of all, the Lenape people were the people that lived in what is now called New York City, um, and they, you know, had just tremendous knowledge about all the ways the plants worked and local ecology. That, of course, was lost, and it was kind of the, this not reintroduction, but sort of, you know learning all these things through observation. So there's a rich history of the natural history of New York City being studied. So it's very well botanized and it's very well recorded in that regard because it was a city and cities were centers of learning and that's where a lot of botanists were. Um, so very famously, John Torrey of the Torrey Botanical Society was botanizing in New York City. Um, the New York Botanical Society actually began out of Columbia College, which of course is now Columbia University, and that's in New York, Manhattan, but New York County, and that's why it's called New York Botanical Society, because then it later moved to the Bronx, um, but the name stuck. Mm -hmm. So there's just a rich history, and so you can, it's interesting in that you can look back and see plants that grew here. Um, so it's really, it's a really great place to do uh, historical records and yeah. what we've lost. Yeah. So th there's a lot of history and being able to look at that. And um, a lot of organizations have done that. There's uh, the Staten Island Museum. It used to be called Staten Island Museum of Arts and Sciences. Now it's just museum. It was started by a number of naturalists in Staten Island. And they have records of basically every plant that grew wild in Staten Island in the 18, late 1800s as wow. herbarium sheets. Yeah. So it's really wonderful. It's kind of sad, but yeah. it's also wonderful to look at that and, you know, get a sense of the very rich flora that is here. But 
it's important for people to know that that is still here. It's not all gone. Um, in fact, you know, probably 70% of our flora is still native. Um, you know, the, how many are remaining of each it is, you know, a different story, right? right. So you can say, you know, we still have Bloodroot, but, you know, how is Bloodroot doing in the city? It's not doing great. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, it's yeah. fascinating, though, because, you know, I think a lot of people, not everyone, of course, uh, historically, especially, though, thought to become a good botanist, you got to get out of the city. And it's really nice to hear multiple different stories of, of how people know you can do this in the city. The city needs it. And I think what you just outlined there is a perfect case in point is that you have a rich history of people that have stretched back millennia. There's records, there's stories to be told, and it is sad in a way to see what's been lost, but we need to understand those stories. But at the same time, there's so much to gain an understanding of what's there. Why is this one not doing well? Why is this one doing well? Because, you know, for better or for worse, whether you like it or not, the human environment is here and it's only increasing. Our impact is increasing and we need boots on the ground to try to understand that. And that's why it's really exciting to talk to someone like you that's just dove in head first and, and really embraces it, but celebrates it too, right? It's not about this, oh, it's all tragedy. It's like, no, it's understanding, it's rediscovery, it's, it's, it's appreciation of how life cohabitates in one of the most populous areas of the planet. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, it's really just wanting to say... New York City has plants, you know, <laughs> New York City has wildflowers. And that is not a weird thing to say. Right. So that's really the point, I guess, that I'm trying to make is that we shouldn't think of cities as these either or propositions. And I think that's mostly how cities are defined. And that is going to not that doesn't serve us at all. Yeah. Um, so in order for people to survive, just as you say, more people now live in cities and urban centers than in rural areas. So we need to be thinking about this on a global level. Um, so, you know, just by default, the nature that people are experiencing is urban nature. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? So it means different things in different places. Um, but in New York city, yeah, I don't want it to, you know, people to think that it's only like tulips and daffodils. Right which we have and they're nice, but they're also not, you know, if you're thinking about ecological infrastructure, that for sure is not it. Yeah. I mean, I will never forget. I, I was a country kid growing up and I grew up on the other side of New York outside of Buffalo. And you think, oh, the big apple, like you're going to go there. It's if you're going to see life, it's going to be in planters or something intentional. And I was very fortunate that the first time I set foot in the city, I'd already kind of gotten the botany bug. And it just, my jaw hit the floor. It's not just stuff in planters. It's not just hanging baskets in the nice neighborhoods. It's, it is a pretty wild place. And, and it is amazing to see some of these things with the backdrop of such modern infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. I've, you know, the other day I was dropping my son off to soccer practice and I was walking along, there's this large retaining wall and it was filled with woodsy obtusa, which is blunt. <sighs> Bluntlow Cliff Fern. Yeah. Awesome. And you know, <laughs> Bluntlow Cliff Fern doesn't know that that's a retaining wall. It's like, hey man, you know, I'm happy here. Right. So yeah, there are a lot of opportunities like that, which are really fun. Um, and in fact, I did a paper on um, the Metro North train trestle that does run through Manhattan um, that had a number of locally rare ferns, including walking fern on it, oh, which is rare in the that's city. Great. Yeah. So you can find things, um, you know, if you're really looking. So there is that for sure, you know, and then the other side of it, well, I guess partly. So a connector would be the High Line. So the High Line, the way it is now, of course, the High Line is fantastic. Um, but I was also on the High Line before it was the High Line. And the plants that grew up there were either things that were planted by people because mm -hmm. there was also like a disco ball up there, <laughs> people's backyards, and, you know, people had windows and would kind of like climb out their window right. illegally to go out there. And, you know, there was basil and, uh, you know, marigolds, things people planted. But then there were also things that had been um, naturally dispersed and it was mainly wind dispersed mm. and bird dispersed. Mm which makes sense, yeah. right? Um, so wind dispersed, you know, there were some ferns, but mostly it was like hardier grasses um, and things in the Asteraceae, shocking. Mm. And um, and then 
you know, bird dispersed. So things like um, Pruna serotna. Um, there was some Junipers virginiana, which is rare in the city. Um, so yeah, there were a number of really interesting species up there too. And that was fun because it was another sort of found environment where it's this mashup of like, you know, natural systems meets like, you know, human made structures and what happens. So, um, yeah. And honestly, those kinds of things to me are always more wondrous than they are when people do it, when (laughs) people do it and designers do it and they're designed like they just always, you know, it's almost like they've never seen it. IRL and so they're kind of like contriving it and they just never really work yeah I mean some of my favorite areas of landscape are where you let nature kind of get back to what it was doing Um, but that woodsy is such a cool example uh, because you know when I first learned about urban ecology it was taught to me as sort of this novel ecosystem concept and it always struck a weird chord with me because it's not like we just invented something new like yeah we've developed the land but we didn't change the laws of physics or chemistry or microclimates in the way they work. It's just they find niches in a different way. And I think the woodsy is a really good example. Like you said, they don't know that's not a, a cliff face, a, a dolomitic cliff face on the river. It's it's just a spot where they were able to set their rhizoids down. And, you know, the High Line, yeah, it's it's got some limiting filtering effect on it because you have to be able to get there. But plants get there. And that's a really cool idea to think about. It's not just this little fallow area in between an alleyway where things, there's a lot of space out there. So when, as an urban botanist in New York city, where do you go looking for these species? Is it just central park or, or you really, you're, you're probably seeing some really cool spots in the city in the process. Yeah. So, well, I, I mean, I love exactly what you said, um, that, uh, it's exactly, oh my gosh. It's the city. You it? You're in the city. Yeah, I know. I am in the city. In case anyone wasn't sure. Yeah. Um, sorry about that. No so, apologies. Yeah. Um, yes. This idea that w- this is all new and novel is just complete bupkis to me. I hate that so much. I can't emphasize how much I hate it. Because I think that that's just throwing in the towel. Yeah. And that's not what we should be doing. You know, New York City has you know, glacial till. It's the soil that was put down thousands of years ago, 18,000 years ago, after the glaciers melted and retreated. Like, that's marvelous. We should be marveling at this. And in fact, you know, when I worked for the Parks Department, um, someone, this really wonderful botanist in um, Staten Island, relocated a plant that had known to be historical there, which was... um, Pycnanthemum torii, the Tory mountain mint. Nice. And it's a globally rare species. It was found, he relocated it um, in the neighborhood where it had been written, recorded Mm. in the south shore of Staten Island. And it was destined to be a strip mall. It was land that the city owned. So the city's economic development corporation owned the land and it had been slated to be, you know, this big box stores. And there's just no way, you know, so uh, just, so this is so many things, I guess, all at once. Number yeah. one, if we think of cities as only being built and there's no nature, then it allows our political leaders to do whatever they want in our natural areas. Now you have no say because you have been hoodwinked into thinking there's no nature to save. Right. Like number two, you know, there is this nature to save. And because we're in cities, it, there's so much less of it. So everything is special. Everything is wonderful. Like if I see one trout lily, I'm like crying. Oh. You know, that's like a me. I mean, yeah. there are places where there's more trout lily sure. than one. But, you know, you see these pictures on Instagram and it just makes me sad. I have total like FOMO oh. on Instagram from botanists. You know, they have like acres and acres and they take these cool shots. I'm like, well, I'm cutting out like garbage and like rusty cars. What else am I cropping out of my pictures? <laughs> you know, um, yeah, so there's so there's so much use. So now what we have left is so little, you know, there's that it's precious and every little thing now that happens is detrimental. So, you know, your dog being off leash, um, ATV use, uh, you know, so many different things, um, biking, mountain bikes. So there's just a lot of issues once we get down to like that kind of scale. Yeah. The human use becomes a real issue and we want New Yorkers. I absolutely want all New Yorkers to fall in love with wildflowers and I want them all to come on my wildflower walk. (laughs) They're all free, but some places that are so wild and there are some, you know, precious and rare things like those should be a little bit, um, 
off the beaten path yeah. and protected. Yeah. But there's, you know, there are wonderful natural areas in all five boroughs. New York City has 14,000 acres of forest. Wow. There's freshwater wetlands. Um, we have salt marshes. Hmm. We have grasslands. Uh, and New York City is also home to 40% of New York State's rare and endangered species. Dang. Yeah, because we're so far south. So that's a, a real part of it. Um, if Staten Island, there is this, you know, apocryphal story about New York and New Jersey riding sailboats around the Isle of Staten to see who gets it. And New York obviously won. Uh -huh. So if Staten Island were part of New Jersey, New York's flora would be far sadder. We have a lot of really cool things because we still have Staten Island. And Staten Island is like a botanical Xanadu. <laughs> it has, it's the least developed Um because the Verrazano Bridge went in in the 60s, and it was very bucolic before that. So, mm, yeah, yeah. So a lot of Staten Islanders are like really in love with that kind of like open spaceness of their borough. Yeah. But it's kind of quickly going by the wayside, and so that's why it's really important to talk about these issues because we need people to be invested in this. If you, you know, you love nature and you want to see this for your kids, then you need to be engaged somehow. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because, again, growing up in New York, getting the botany bug in New York, I would always go, wait, this plant exists in the state. And then I'd look and it was it, without a doubt, like nine out of 10 times it would be in that area of New York. I'm like, oh, OK, the maritime thing. But yeah, I, I do appreciate this idea of preciousness and how really special these things, because, yeah, I can go out into the woods by me and see thousands and thousands and thousands of trout lily. It doesn't mean I love them any less, but you see them and you're like, OK. Right. There's trout lily. Like, of course there's trout lily, but there's areas where you can't say, of course there's trout lily. Or if there is, you really have to pressure. You know, it's precious, like you said. And being able to be in a city and show people that and, and work with the pride of people that love these open spaces or these wild areas or that really, you know, this is their one respite from what is a very fast paced lifestyle of, of a lot of indoor time it's it's a shame it's gotten to that point and like you said every little bit matters but there is something to be said about how precious that is is like you can see how quickly it can go away and that to me is something that's very special too to be able to communicate that to anyone and i'm glad you're having free wildlife hikes there because that's <laughs> so important yeah well it is and especially you know like we were talking about earlier you know there's the charismatic megafauna eye roll so like <laughs> you know you have to kind of pull people along a little bit like mm -hmm. yeah those things are cool but did you know about this about this plant or that about this plant and i think it's maybe a little bit more challenging because plants don't have eyes and they don't kind of lure you in in the same way that maybe birds do but plants have fascinating stories and so I feel like it's my job to tell that yeah. right to New Yorkers and just try to help them see New York City the way I do. Um, and it's beautiful. You know, there's so many wonderful things yeah. in New York City to see plant wise. And I think that what makes it so amazing is that New York City has all these plants still and the we have over eight million people living here. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, so Kurt Vonnegut referred to New York City as Skyscraper National Park. But there's so much more to it than that. So, uh, I like Vonnegut for what it's worth. But yeah, you know, yeah, he had yeah. opinions and thoughts, but they're not all of them necessarily are accurate. Yes. Well, you know, some parts of the city, it absolutely makes sense. But it's just, you know, even even New Yorkers mm -hmm. have told me that they didn't know that, oh, this place existed. Mm. Um, and that, I think that's especially true of Inwood Hill Park, which is the northernmost tip of Manhattan. And it has old growth trees. Uh, it has rare wildflowers. Wow. And it has unusual insects. And it's Manhattan. Yeah. So to me, that's really powerful. The sense that even on the island of Manhattan, which might be, you know, one of the most urbanized places in the world, you can still find, you know, 120 year old tulip trees and Dutchman wow. breaches. And yeah, you know, that's awesome. That's so special. I remember reading a story a few years back. So I apologize if I miss up any of the details here. But yeah, someone found pumpkin ash in, I think it was pumpkin ash in Central yeah. Park. And like, here's a park that receives millions of visitors every year. And there's still things to rediscover. I won't say discover, but rediscover in a place that you know, countless people walk by every day. It, it, the, th the thought of like, oh, it's all done. It's all been figured out. It, that's such bunk. And, and people like you are a really good example. Like, no, get out there, observe, because you never know what you're going to find. 
Yeah, no, that's true. I know, which is really wonderful. There is always something. Oh my gosh, a friend just sent me a notice that he found, what was it? Amelanchier Nantucketensis in Manhattan. And I don't know that it had ever been recorded there before. Um, so, and it, that's a globally rare species. Wow. So, you know, come on. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. There's a lot of really cool stuff here, but it's definitely, um, there's a lot of really cool stuff. And, you know, so all of this is true. So if you're, you're looking at a list of taxa, then you're thinking, okay, this is kind of remarkable. Um, and it surely is. But then at the same time, it's like what I inferred earlier, you know, how are these populations doing? So, mm. you know, over the last 100 years, 75% of the city's natural areas were destroyed. We've lost 43% of our flora, including pennywort um, and yellow-fringed orchids. Oh, wow. So there's definitely things that we've lost, and these are things that are are impacted the most by um, urbanization, yeah. right? So in terms of how the flora is doing overall... Trees and shrubs, as you might imagine, are more resilient than herbaceous plants, sure. right? Because they're woody. So ground layer vegetation is especially sensitive. So our ferns and our forbs and our graminoids, um, they are being really hard hit. We've lost a lot of wetlands and open meadows. We A lot of our wetlands. Um, I think we have only 5% of our wetlands left. 5% of our freshwater wetlands and 1% of our salt salt marshes left because they're coastal and coastal is all about, um, commerce. Right. Um, yeah. And then the boroughs of Manhattan and Brooklyn have more exotic species than they do native species. But again, that's why, you know, the Bronx and Queens and Staten Island are so critical because they're really housing, you know, the majority of our native flora, which is really important. Yeah, that brings up an interesting concept from an ecological perspective because you think of how these species evolved in large continuous tracts of habitat, you know, and then you think about what fragmentation does and then you think about fragmentation on top of urbanization, on top of expansion of that. And and it really does beg the question of like what's going to happen to these because plants live on a different life cycle than we do. They have different time frames than we do. And just because it's hanging on now doesn't mean tomorrow it's going to be there. And so as an ecologist with a botany perspective mixed in there is how do you go about trying to understand the dynamics of some of these populations, especially when you're finding these things that might be isolated here and then it's, you know, streets and and, and a lot of inhospitable areas for particular species in between? Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of what we've been losing in the city are plants that are more susceptible to urbanization and largely I found them to be if it's not a plant that's that's particular to a habitat so freshwater wetland plants are rare in New York City because freshwater wetlands are rare yeah, yeah. so that's you know a little bit easier to size up but in terms of what's going on in our upland woodlands um, that's the majority of the land that we have left and you find plants that have that have more particular ecological or biological needs, those are the ones that you're losing. Um, So I can think of uh, spring ephemeral, and then even within that group, um, forbs whose seeds are dispersed by ants. Mm. Um, Ants travel very little distance from the parent. I think there was a study that showed over a thousand year period um, the seeds traveled maybe a hundred yards. So, yeah, so that's a very slow moving. And unfortunately in New York city, we had someone called Robert Moses, who was the head of New York city parks and the head of the department of transportation simultaneously. And he was drunk with power Mm -hmm. and built highways through parks and, Basically, you know, all of our natural areas are divvied up by by streets, even Central Park. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, ants can't cross roads. So once and even, you know, larger um, trails that end up being expanded and expanded, you know, you'll have a trail and it's a certain width. But then let's say it rains and now there's a divot in the middle that there's a puddle and people are walking around the puddle. So they're like gradually expanding the size of the trail. And if you have plants that are looking for a little bit of dappled light, 
they're, they might be trailside, but now they're being, you know, run over by bicycles or people's feet. So, you know, those kinds of things, um, are an issue, but yeah. So those larger trails, ants aren't able to cross that either. So you see things like that as being particularly susceptible. Um, another group would be orchids. Mm -hmm. So orchids, New York city used to have 30 species of orchids and (laughs) today, yeah, I know. Right. I'm so glad you, you said that because I love (laughs) sharing this with people, you know, orchids are just splendiferous as we all know. Perfect word. Um, Yeah. They, they really are. There's just no other word to describe it. Um, and of course, we have terrestrial orchids because, you know, all of your listeners, of course, know about terrestrial orchids. But mostly when I tell people about orchids, they're thinking of like corsage tropical. <laughs> right. Um, the epiphytes. So we have terrestrial orchids. We used to have 30 species. And today we only have six. And out of all of them, those six populations, there's maybe only uh 11, sorry, there's six species left and there's 11 populations of those six species. And you don't even want to know how many are in each individual population, right? So that's the thing. You can look at it and say, wow, isn't that amazing? Like we still have six species of orchids left. But yeah, you know, because orchids are so particular and they're so sensitive to the environment in which they live and because the seeds are so small, um, and you know, they need their, their particular, um, mycorrhizae, yeah, you know, those are the things that we're losing. Um, and it's not really surprising. But yeah. one thing that I'm seeing more and more of, though, is the exotic broadleaf teleborine. Oh, yeah. Teleborine. Yeah. And, you know, when I started doing this work in New York City 20 years ago, that wasn't here. I never saw it. So this is definitely, um, you know, something that's more recent. And I'm finding it in more and more parks every year, which yeah. is, you know, just it's interesting. It is interesting, and that's it's interesting for a lot of reasons. Because again, on the other side of the state in Buffalo, that is the orchid you would—that's the only orchid you'd find in the city. And it is anecdotal. I don't have data. I've never analyzed it, but yet, boy, in the like five, six years, I started noticing it. It was suddenly overnight. It felt everywhere. I mean, in planters, in the worst soils you've seen. It's just—it's such a generalist. That you just, it's a head scratcher. I, I mean, it's just a conundrum of it. It's a fascinating orchid, but you also have to take a step back and go like, you shouldn't be here and we need to learn why you are so abundant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And can you share some of your abundance with your colleagues? Who yeah, right. Thing? Yeah. <laughs> Teach them how to be more generalists. <laughs> I know, that yeah. would be really nice. Yeah, so, you know, in looking, and so... And again, it's like looking at the taxa overall, you know, it's easy to paint a rosy picture and it's not that it's all, it's not that it's all negative, but I think it's important for people to understand like what's at stake and that there are opportunities for them to be engaged and ways to get involved. Um, Because if people don't think plants are political, (laughs) I mean, you know, they really are. And it's like, I hate to bring politics into it, but really politics and plants are because it's about land use and, you know, land use is political. Even within the parks department, there are spaces that are known as forever wild sites, but that's a meaningless term. There's no, there's nothing behind that designation. There's no legislation. Um, And so it's very easy for these spaces to be turned into recreational facilities. And that's what gets political leaders votes, right? So they Mm want to see ball fields in places that might be swamp forest. And, you know, this happens all the time. Uh, And then, you know, shockingly, the ball field gets rained out every, you know, the games get rained out and they can't use it because it still knows that it's a wetland, you know, topographically. So, um, yeah. And that was work. Some of the work that I did when I was at parks was doing restoration projects. And that was some of them was like going back to being a wetland from a ball field because yeah, it's not working as a ball field. Right. Um, yeah, but even in, so in Staten Island, um, it's about 10% of its land area is preserved. So it still has really cool plants that you don't see in other places like, um, nodding trillium and Mm -hmm. wood lily, but yeah, you know, even Staten Island again is being very highly developed. And I, in some ways it seems like, the aspirations of the politicians is to turn Staten Island into Brooklyn and Brooklyn has like the least amount of open space. So I hope that doesn't happen. 
Me too. <laughs> That's yeah. a shame. But yeah, I, I, you can't ignore it because, you know, nature doesn't follow political boundaries, but we sure do. And uh, they sure do influence like you were talking earlier. If, if the boundary, if, if New Jersey would have gotten Staten Island, it would be a very different picture. That's an arbitrary boundary, but it does affect the way that whatever's left there gets managed. And I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. I don't want to get into that battle, but there right. is no reason if you care at all about nature, you can't write a letter or call or just say something to a, an elected official that says, hey, think about this because, you know, the recreational community has got a lot of people on its side. The mountain bikers have a lot of people on their side. The, you name it. The human activity side is well supported. What's not is the voices for these natural areas where I would guess a sad percentage of the population don't even know they're there let alone why they're so special and that's why again someone like you is so important to tell those stories and where possible where it's not going to impact it negatively show it too right exactly yeah so I really feel like my job is to be um and and it's funny because this is not how I started out like mostly I was like (laughs) oh I don't like people I want to just like hide in the woods and be with my plants But, you know, I found out the hard way that you, you know, plants are political, Um, you know, putting your head in the sand and by you, I mean me, my, you know, if I were to put my head in the sand, then I would lose the things that I love. Mm -hmm. So I needed to get involved. And then I realized, you know, one really important tool that I had was to find ways to educate the public. So I started doing talks. Um, I've written series for the New York times. I've done columns on, um, autumn unfolding in, in Wood Hill park in, in, uh, Manhattan that I mentioned earlier. I did a series in Staten Island. I've written op-eds for the times talking about, um, extinct wildflowers of New York city. Um, I had a series on WNYC, which is our public radio station. So yeah, because I'm really trying to fight the stereotype that New York city is all hardscapes and humans, you know, that there's so much more to it and your, our human lives are so much richer by knowing that these things are our neighbors. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I like it too. There's another narrative there as well that it's like nature isn't just out in the woods. It is all around us and we have to remember we're part of it. And, you know, whether you care about the wildflowers themselves or food security, you know, those plants are supporting the insects that again go on to pollinate things that can help people in impoverished areas have food on their table, good food at that. It's touching all aspects of our lives and those narratives get told in a way that's unique, it's special, it's different. And the fact that any of those outlets you just talked about gave you the platform to do that to me is at least a sign that someone's listening right and and you at least get the you get the opportunity to do it because it's so easy to just go now get away green hippie no ew but (laughs) there's hope in there I guess in some ways yeah no I think there definitely is you know the um I'm actually going to be on Brian Lehrer again in a couple weeks talking about my my voting campaign project which I'll talk about later but Yeah. So Brian Lair to me is just the heart of New York City. He has a public, he has a show on WNYC, our public radio station. He's had it for decades and he's just, you know, he is New York City. And to have me on, we did a series last year about trees. I came on once a month and talked about trees. We asked um, New Yorkers to adopt a tree for a year and just keep track of them and share their monthly photo using a hashtag on Twitter. And then every month we had a different topic. We had someone come on and talk about phenology. Um, we had another, you know, and of course a lot of these are friends of mine. We had, um, another person come on and talk about trees and equity, um, and environmental justice. We had someone else come on and talk about, um, trees and birds, um, and, caterpillars how caterpillars are feeding Hmm. the baby birds so yeah there's so many ways trees as ecosystems and the ways that trees actually house so many other things you know they have lichen they have mosses they have um you know different fungi so there's so many different ways to think about local nature yeah and brian i pitched the show to them and i'm like they're never gonna go for this but i figured it couldn't hurt and brian loved it so That's I was like, awesome. oh, my God. Yeah, I know. And then he and I, when it ended, we wrote um, an op-ed together and that we published in um, our local paper here. But, yeah, so the fact that someone who, who to me is so New York, <laughs> you know, took this on and said yes to it, which was crazy to me because um, he mostly has politicians on. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that was really delightful. And I think that there there are opportunities and people are really eager for this, mm-hmm. but there aren't a lot of outlets. So it's it's really important that anyone who does this work, like please, you know, talk to people, find ways to share the work that you do with the public as much as possible because people are really eager for it and there's just not a lot there's not a lot out in the world about it, you know. Well, yeah, and be interesting. You know what I mean? Just tell the interesting stories. It doesn't have to be the same repetitive nonsense that we learned in unfortunate public school science classes sometimes, you know? It it can be compelling. It can be interesting. Every plant's got a story to tell. It's made it millions of years to get to this point where then all of a sudden this upright ape is like, no, I need this to be concrete, right? (laughs) But, you know, at the same time, I... I've talked to so many people all over the world. I rarely meet anyone that's antagonistic towards nature. There's complacency, there is ignorance, but most people can find it interesting or at least appreciate natural beauty. And that's great because it gives you at least a hook. You just got to find the right one for the right group of people. And it's, you got to learn how to talk to people and change your approach depending on the group or the organization but there's something in there. And that's, what's exciting about it is, is there's the, Pick your flavor, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, honestly, sometimes I just feel like an old, um, you know, like an old timey entertainer with like a hat and tap shoes because <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I will do anything to get you to pay attention to plants, you know, to that, that. Yeah, it's kind of sad. Um, but, but at the know, same time, yeah. I mean, I just and I'm not this like I'm not a person who normally is, I don't know, just goes around. And but when it comes to plants, I will like interrupt you. I will yell across the room. <laughs> I will run down a street. I'm like a crazy person. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've been nothing sure. but pleasant this whole time. So whatever you're doing, you're hiding it well. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. But, you know, I think that there's so there's so many ways to me, I think, for people to be engaged. You know, one, like people who are doing this work can find different ways to tell plant stories. And then also it's just kind of surfacing some of the issues around, um, you know, what's happening with plants, especially in urban centers Mm -hmm. and ways that people can sort of work to fight back. So, um, you know, I see a lot of people doing things I think that they feel like is meaningful and they go out into the woods and they're sort of like, you know, throwing seed bombs into someone. <laughs> I was in a panel last week and someone asked about seed bombs and a vacant lot. And I was like, mm, you know, I was trying to bite my tongue, but then she directed the question to me. Um, you know, that's not very useful. It's, and it might be nice and it might make you feel good, but there's already, you know, there's going to be, um, dandelions in there. You know, I can think of already like the 10 species that are in there, you know, origeron, there's plenty of things that are nectar sources for pollinators. Right. They don't need your seed bombs, but a better use of your time would be to volunteer with your parks department and go into natural areas and help cutting out oriental bittersweet, which is a very, um, pernicious invasive species in the city you know so those are the kinds of things that are really useful for people to do um or planting native species um in your uh you know if you have a planter you have a window box um that's really useful especially monarch um milkweed for monarchs because we have monarchs flying over new york city Mm -hmm. um i really want to get monarch policy passed somehow that's another thing on my to-do list of the money. Um, yeah, but you know, it's just it's crazy to me. Monarchs are nothing but joyful and they have flown over New York City for thousands of years and we literally do zero for yeah. them. And it would not be hard to plant more milkweed in the landscape, you know. Um Yeah, so you know, there's lots of things that people can do in that regard and also the idea of like um paying attention to what's going on with regard to um, parkland, um, if things are being built on, you know, going out to public hearings, being engaged with your community boards, all our community boards have, um, park committees where they talk about these kinds of issues. Um, because yeah, you know, cities overall are hotter than their rural counterparts. They have more built land. They have increased use by humans. Um, you know, so our soils tend to be more degraded, um, typically a lot of the soils are compacted and they don't have enough of the, or any of the organic material left mm. on the top, which of course is the nursery of the forest. You know, that's yeah. where all the baby, little baby seedlings are and, um, seeds. And so if there's no organic layer because it's all been lost to ATV use, um, that's a problem. And now yeah. that's, 
know, going to be a very expensive restoration project. So if people see that kind of thing happening in a local natural area, you know, um, call the parks department, make some phone calls, work to get barriers put up um, so that people can't ride ATVs in those parks anymore. There are things people can do that are really meaningful. Yeah. But I think sometimes they just need a little bit of direction as to like, you know, where to go. They've got good energy. Right. It's like where to where to apply it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's um, you got to almost it's like childlike energy. And and yeah, you got to harness it in the right way. And I'm glad you brought up the invasive issue. Um, You know, it's you think of disturbance and disturbance to me means invasive species have sort of an open door policy like, hey, we disturbed it. Come on in kind of deal. And I've heard a lot of really well-intentioned people in cities say, well, at least something can live here. And to me, I'm like, okay, I get it. You want nature around at any cost, whether it's native or not. But uh, coming back to what you do, it's proof that, no, the native stuff can live here too. We got to stop acting like this is an inhospitable area for indigenous species that can support local ecosystems, right? And, And the invasive issue is a big sort of problem. If you don't understand why they're a problem, then it's just another great plant to have around. But your Asian bittersweet's not feeding nearly as much as the native bittersweet. <laughs> right, exactly. No, I, I mean, I love that you that you said that because, yeah, I think that's very much a sort of like um, urban planner perspective. Like, it's good that something's growing there. And I just think that that's the wrong tack to take. Mm-hmm. That's why all urban planners who are listening, call your local ecologist. <laughs> you need to work with them. <laughs> we need to be working together. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because you know, you know what's a really harsh environment? Dunes, outer coastal <laughs> areas, you know, sandy soils. That is rough times, and plants have managed, and they do really well there. Yeah, and no one's coming and fussing over them. Um, they're not being watered. There's, you know, so this idea that oh, it's too harsh, it's too, you know, insert adjective. Right. Nothing will grow there except you know this non-native. That's just patently false. Um, but what it does mean is that they need to go on more plant walks, you know, and I think find ways to learn from and mimic the natural environment. There are lots of harsh conditions that are out in nature. Salt marshes are another one, right? So, yeah. you know, plants are plants are the best experts and we should be learning from them. Totally. Yes. Thank you. So many lessons <laughs> to be taken from plants. But yeah. with that in mind, in terms of getting active, you started a really great campaign to get New York City its own wildflower. And this involves getting people to vote, right? I mean, that's part of this whole political process that really does affect natural areas and the species that rely on them. So tell me a little bit more about this campaign for a wildflower for the city. Yes. So, um, yeah, so we have this campaign And I was really inspired by, um, let's see, what year is it? So in 2021, New York City had a political campaign for mayor. And it was the first time in eight years that we had a new mayor. And so, you know, things get things get feisty. They Mm -hmm. get frothy. Mm -hmm. So but it was exciting to see people being so civically engaged. And that's the part of politics that I really love is that local lens. And I wanted to capture some of that, but, you know, but botanize it. Right. (laughs) So, (laughs) yes. So we have a campaign that we want New Yorkers to vote for an official New York city wildflower. And I'm working with organizations around the city. Each organization has chosen a plant that to represent their borough. And so we have five candidates. I've had people, you know, tongue in cheek email me and say, Oh, it should be, you know, this or that. And, you know, some of them are, things that aren't native. But again, like I said, we have so many native plants and there's such a disconnect around the fact that they live here too and we need to make room for them and our lives are enriched by them and our human health is made better by them. So, um, you know, let's really put them, uh, let's really shine the spotlight on them. So um, we're partnering with... um, organizations around the city. Like I said, one of them is the Highline in Manhattan. Nice. They nominated Butterfly Weed. Good choice. Uh, Yes. So Asclepius tuberosa, which is a lovely species. And so I should back up and say I had some criteria before we went into this. One Hmm. was that there had to be historical records of the species that they chose. Hmm. 
in that borough. So I was not involved in the species choosing. I had some that I was like mentally sort of hoping, like <laughs> casting a spell, but no one chose mine. Oh. Um, so yeah, so there had to be historical records. They didn't even have to be angiosperms um, and they could be anything. Nice. So, you know, we have a couple of woodies in here too. Yeah. So they, it had to be a historical record. It had to be native. Um, so there are records of Asclepius tuberosa having grown wild in Manhattan. Now you can see beautiful um, displays of it on the High Line, which is, you know, and they'll be in flower in the summer. So anyone who's coming into New York, you know, yeah. go visit the High Line in Do summer. It. It'll be beautiful. And Queens is represented by the Queens Botanical Garden. And they chose Helianthus giganteus, which is giant sunflower. Solid. Yeah. And I love this one because... Um, you know, people, they chose it because the genus is so well-known globally and their Queens is our most, it's the borough that speaks the most languages. Nice. Which is, yes, which is wonderful. So they chose Helianthus because they knew it really resonated in a lot of different cultures. And I think that's really beautiful. Cool. And also it's the only one with its own emoji. So <laughs> if people are feeling, yeah, if people are feeling a certain way about like, oh, it's, you know, it's so cool. It has an emoji. That might be the one to vote for. Okay. Um, in the Bronx, we're partnering with the New York Botanical Garden. And they chose Spicebush, which is Lindera benzoin. Yes. And so, you know, this, of course, is in the Laurelaceae family. It's closely related to sassafras. Um, and it is the sole food plant for Spicebush swallowtail. Well, that and sassafras, right. the laurel. Um, so, but, you know, the, the neat thing about Spicebush is that it's the most common of the five candidates. Hmm. So Spicebush is found in every borough in New York City, and it's a really important shrub in our woodlands. So it's something almost anyone can see. That's cool. I would City. not have guessed that to be the most common one. That's neat. Yeah. I mean, I ha this isn't. This isn't backed up by data. It's backed up by Fair. my eyeballs, but Fair. I'm saying, Fair. yeah. Okay. According to me. This Caveat. Is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and so in Staten Island, we're working with the Staten Island Museum. And not only do they have an amazing collection of herbarium species, as I mentioned earlier, but they not, well, they actually didn't nominate, but the pinkster azalea Ooh. is their species, rhododendron periclemonoides. Nice. And so interestingly, Staten Island already had a native plant for the borough. Oh. In the mid-1980s, Staten Islanders kind of got together and it was led by the newspaper, the Staten Island Advance, um, <laughs> with a really prominent naturalist in the borough. Yeah. And they chose, it was out of seven species, um, Pinkster Azalea One. Wow. Dang. I know. That's which cool. Is really yeah. Fun. yeah. So my little tagline is that this is the, this is the plant that has political experience. <laughs> so if you're looking for a plant that's already been in office, this is your choice. I love it. Yeah. This is, this is the one that like knows how to, you know. <laughs> Kiss babies and shake hands. Right. <laughs> Touch all um, those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in Brooklyn, last but not least, my home borough, yay Brooklyn, um, we're working with Brooklyn Bridge Park, and they're absolutely delightful. They chose the wonderful wild columbine, yes. which is Acolytia canadensis. Nice. And interestingly, again, this is a, a species that I'm, I'm, you know, you can't ever say you're totally sure, right? But I don't know that this species still even grows in New York City. Oh, no. It's definitely not in Brooklyn anymore, but it is very commonly planted. Sure. So you see it in people's gardens, and there's a, a huge, beautiful display of it in Brooklyn Bridge Park. Um, and interestingly, it is... It is pollinated by ruby-throating hummingbirds, which, of course, is the only hummingbird that we have in the eastern United mm. States. And we have it in New York City. I've seen it with my own eyes. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. So these are the five candidates, and we're asking people to choose your favorite Man. and vote. <laughs> Yeah, and we're going to then use, but and you know, and this is fun, and we want people to be thinking about this, um, you know, in terms of the city. But then on a slightly deeper level, you know, we're talking about why voting matters, because when we're talking about resiliency, resilience is such a sexy term these days. Sure. Um, that you know, in terms of thinking about climate, um, we need to be thinking about local nature, and our local wildlife, as we mentioned before, really relies on these indigenous plants but by and large 
um, they're not always protected in the wild and they're often overlooked, as we mentioned. Yeah. So sometimes people don't really pay attention to plants unless they have a big showy bloom. So we're trying to raise awareness around this issue. And then we're going to take the data that we've collected from people's votes and go to New York City Council with this and ask them to introduce a bill to um, enter this into legislation to make it officially a New York City wildflower, the winner. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, that's actually a difficult vote because those are all amazing candidates and I want them I all know. to win equally. <laughs> I know. But do you know what? Do you know what's hilarious? So, well, I'm going to say, so I'm not voting. I, my hands are clean. I feel like since I'm the campaign manager <laughs> and I can see behind the curtain. No corruption. We uh, have enough yeah, of that already. I'm not going to vote because I just want to, you know, feel like people can trust me. But, um, and we're asking for when people vote to put in an email and their zip code. So we've had people vote from like Canada. And at first I was like, oh, I only want New Yorkers to vote. Yeah, but then who's to say who's a New Yorker, right? Ooh. Did you live here for 20 years and now you moved and your heart is still in yeah. in Brooklyn, right? So right. I'm not going to take that away from you. So yeah, so people have been voting globally. It's kind of fun. But some people have a lot of opinions and they're voting more than once. Uh-oh. And I can tell because it'll be this different iterations of their name. <laughs> You know, it'll be like <laughs> Kathy one, Kathy one, two, three, Kathy three, four, five. And so she's voting for, you know, and some of them are voting for different ones or it's the same one multiple oh, times. People. Yeah, it's really funny. And yeah. it's the same zip code every time. Yeah, it's it's funny. But, it, you know, it's I love that people are opinionated about it. Yeah. And and the fascinating thing, too, is you're kind of earning your, your, your stripes in being sort of a sociopolitical scientist now, too. You're, you're getting a whole yeah. new subset of humanity and data to work with and you must be learning so much more than you ever thought you would. <laughs> I know. Oh, that's so funny. I guess I never thought of it that way, but yeah, it's true. I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'd like to get 10,000 people to vote. And so far we've had about 1200. The campaign runs through election day. Okay. So just like a good campaign, you know, normally the candidates will announce their bids in the spring and then it runs through election day. So yeah, the polls are open for quite a while, Sweet. but we're hoping to get 10,000 people because I really want to be able to, to show political leaders that there's a real, um, you know, that there's a, a real group of stalwart, yeah. dedicated plant people in New York City, and we should be honoring them by creating an official wildflower. Right. Yeah. Say, so where's my constituency? Well, it's right here. Exactly. <laughs> Plenty exactly. of it. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. And so for anyone listening that, you know, has their heart somewhere in New York, how do they go figure out how to do all this? Where do they go looking? Yeah, so the website is really easy. It's www.wildflowernyc.org. Um, and there's also an Instagram, and I think it's Vote Wildflower NYC. See, I should have had all my That's stuff. That's okay. I No one ever remembers this stuff, so what I do is I just put the links in the show notes, and then I save uh, everyone the trouble of trying to write this stuff down. Because people okay. drive, they're running, they're showering, you know, all that sort right, of stuff. Right, right, right. Okay, awesome. So that's great. Yeah, so... They can go to the website, um, and then that website also mentions all the other organizations that are the partners. It also has a link to my website, NYC Wildflower Week, because we're the campaign manager. <laughs> um, and I'm on um, social as NYC Botanist, so people can find me there too. And I'd love, you know, if anyone has opinions or thoughts, I am always love to talk plants with people. So we're Fantastic. open and, yeah. Well, this is amazing, Meryl. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about this. You are truly an inspiration and a real advocate in all of the right ways. And you're doing it in such a cool and interesting place and shining light on a, a lesser appreciated element of city life. And that is so vital, especially as we move into this uncertain future that we're in. But, you know, people like you give me hope. And the fact that there are still plants, a lot of plants in this area gives me hope. So thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it. Yeah. Oh, Matt, I can't thank you enough. I mean, what you do is so wonderful. Your podcast is amazing, and I'm just really oh, thrilled to you. be part of it. Thank you for having me on. Of course. Well, again, keep us in the loop. And uh, yeah, I look forward to how this all turns out, but maybe we'll have to have you come back on and really speak for the candidate that makes it through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I would love that. Thank you so much. Well, in the meantime, keep botanizing and keep being an advocate for plants. They, they need it, and you're a perfect voice for them. So thank you again. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers. Bye.
All right. Fantastic stuff. What an inspiration. I thank Marielle for taking time out of her very busy schedule to talk with us. And I highly recommend you go check out all of the links in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. And if you have any connection or passion for New York City and its botany, consider voting. As always, those links are found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, where you can also find many different ways to support this show. I mean it when I say I couldn't be doing the show without support. So consider becoming a patron. There's a lot of really great kickbacks there, and I literally couldn't be doing this without the monthly support from my patrons. You can pick up some of our customizable apparel, a copy of my book, or stickers. All of those links are over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Speaking of support, I have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Kazis and Rick. Both of them signed up over at patreon.com slash plants at the producer credit level. So they're doing everything they can to help keep the show up and running. And they're getting a lot of great kickbacks in the process. So thank you to both of them. And thank you, of course, to all of my patrons. I couldn't be doing this without you. But that is entirely enough for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.